0: Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the analysis.news. And one more time, please don't forget the donate button on top of the webpage. If you're watching on YouTube, come on over and donate at the analysis.news. Hit the subscribe button, share it. You know, the number one comment on YouTube is why aren't more people watching? And you know, a lot of people are watching, but we'd like a lot more. And if you share it, people will. So this is part four of my series of interviews with Bill Black on what he calls control fraud. So please watch the earlier parts because again, we're just going to pick up where we left off and it will be a lot make more sense if you've watched the previous ones first. Uh, on on uh, the analysis, it's all on one page and on the YouTube, come to the YouTube, uh, the analysis channel and there'll be a playlist where all this will be easy to find. So again, the Docu series titled The Con, uh, breaks down a lot of what happened during the financial crisis of 07, 08. And here's another trailer from the film.
1: So what we discovered in the savings and loan crisis uh, was that fish rot from the head. When the CEO is the crook of a seemingly legitimate organization, they can cause vastly greater losses and damage. Um, precisely because of that seeming legitimacy. In finance, the weapon of choice is accounting. And what we discovered in the savings and loan crisis was that uh, there's a recipe. And the recipe has four ingredients. One, grow like crazy. Two, by making really crappy loans. Three, while employing extreme leverage that just means a whole lot of debt compared to equity. And four, while setting aside only trivial reserves for the inevitable losses that you're going to have. If you follow this recipe, it produces three sure things. One, the bank, the lender will report record profits. They'll be fictional, but They'll report record profits. Two, under modern executive compensation the CEO and the other senior folks will promptly be made wealthy. And three, down the road you're gonna have catastrophic losses from all of this because if you think about it that same recipe is a fabulous way of producing massive losses. And if a bunch of lenders do the same strategy it's also the optimal way to hyper-inflate a bubble. Because after all, what do you do as the bubble gets worse and worse? First ingredient, grow like crazy. And that makes the bubble get bigger and bigger and bigger. But it does something else and in the trade we call this, this is not something we invented as regulators, this is what the industry says. A rolling loan gathers no loss and to roll a loan is to refinance it. So as long as there's a bubble and housing prices are inflating, if I make a loan to someone who can't repay it, I just make them a bigger loan. And they can use the proceeds of that loan to pay off the last one. And as long as the bubble is hyperinflating, this works, which is why once the bubble stops inflating, you get this massive collapse in these circumstances. So it's really easy, in fact Jamie Dimon, of all people, the head of JP Morgan, has put in a letter to his shareholders the fraud recipe. Now he phrases it very slightly differently, he says that it's easy to create low quality profits today and disastrous losses tomorrow by having lousy underwriting. So this is the couple of key things that are really not obvious to big parts of the world. It's indeed famously one of the most important non-prosecutors in the current crisis, refuses to prosecute any of the senior officers. He was in charge of the J.P. Morgan case, right? Refused to indict any of them, even though he had a whistleblower who gave him a case on a platinum platter because he said, It doesn't make any sense to me. Banks lose money when they make bad loans. Why would they hurt themselves? And of course, he's confused his pronouns. By they, he means the CEO. And who do they loot? They loot the bank. Those are not the same people. The best way to get rich, title of my book, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. So
0: now, again, joining us to discuss the history and present state of control fraud is Bill Black, who is in the film The Con. He was an advisor to its producers. Bill's an American lawyer, an academic, an author. And he's also a professor, an associate professor at the University of Missouri-Kansas City and specializes in law and economics, or maybe I should flip it the other way. Economics and law, I think, is the way he frames it. And he's the author of the book, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. And if you've been watching this series, you'll understand just how profound a statement that is. Uh, Thanks for joining us again, Bill. Thank you. All right, so we left off Arnov, the guy who helped construct Ameriquest, uh, a massive fraud scheme, uh, where, as you said, Ameriquest becomes the largest mortgage fraud company in the world. Uh, He gets punished by becoming the ambassador to the Netherlands, uh, which is obviously a suitable punishment uh, rather than going to prison, which seems to be that's the kind of punishment, Uh, these executives seem to get. All right, so pick up the story from where we left off.
1: So this was the easiest crisis ever to prevent, right? When it was completely novel in 1990, we'd never seen it before. The examiners immediately got it right. But by 1994, We've got a whole trail of dead places from this fraud and predation and lots of examples. And then every year afterwards, it just becomes more and more blatant. But then we get the three greatest warnings in history about this disaster. So when people say, nobody could see this coming, (laughs) it's
0: like,
1: what are you talking about? So let me tell you the first one. The first one actually begins in 1998. Now, of course you could say it began in 1990 when our examiners did it, but in 1998, the appraisal professional associations and their rivals began to meet together to try to develop a common response to this extortion of appraisers to inflate a- appraised values on homes. Let me just
0: jump in here really fast in case there's somebody watching that didn't watch the earlier parts. Uh, focus on the bankers getting great fees for pushing appraisers to over-appraise houses, even though it hurt the interests of their own banks, it doesn't matter because they're getting fees. Okay, go on. Okay,
1: so, 1998 is a friggin' long time ago <laughs> it's in the clinton administration it's 10 years before and the appraisers are sounding the perfect warning first extorting appraisers in itself is a federal felony so it's not just a warning of looting It in itself is a crime wave. Second, no honest lender would ever inflate or allow anybody else to inflate the appraisal because it's your great protection against loss. And I, back in the day, in the savings and loan debacle, was one of the principal trainers of the FBI agents and assistant U.S. attorneys who were investigating and prosecuting and getting over a thousand felony convictions of these folks. So what did we do? We explained how an honest bank worked and why there were some things that only a fraudulent banker would do. And because I was then a federal employee, I was a free expert witness. No fees, right? <laughs> You're a federal employee. So you can imagine they like putting you on the stand as a prosecutors. And I would explain to jurors, hey, no honest da da da, da what I just went through. And within 15 seconds, every juror would be turning and looking at each other and nodding. This is something really understandable. And when we prosecute, we want understandable stuff, not super complex finance stuff. We want things that people can understand and go, yeah, that's right. That'd be stupid. You'd lose money. Nobody honest sets it up so you lose money as a lender, right? No lender would do that. That's crazy hey, it also makes sense to do it if it is a fraud. Well, I guess what? It must be a fraud. <laughs> right? that, that's really how easy it is. Okay. So it's in itself a felony, but it's also the leading indicator of a much bigger felony, the looting strategy. And that's what we want as regulators, leading indicators that tell us years in advance before the collapse, this place is a fraud. And then we rush, we make them our top priority to close in those circumstances. None of this happens anymore. None of this has happened for 25 years. Our meeting with the senators you know, that was 1987, the five senators that tried to hammer us. That's a long time ago where all of this stuff gets forgotten. Okay, but the the honest appraisers do some other things because they're smart. First, they make it a uniform position. That takes them two years to hammer out, but... Every federal banking regulatory agency has a chief appraiser. And all of those chief appraisers would have known no later, at the absolute latest in 1998, that there was a national epidemic and that it was led not by borrowers, but by lenders and their agents, the loan brokers, right? And to ensure that the loan brokers reached this uniform position in the year 2000 and went, modern folks, online with an online petition that eventually had 11,000 signatories.
0: Of appraisers.
1: Of of appraisers, which they stopped and said, if 11,000 of us won't convince you, Clearly, you know numbers don't help, so we're just going to stop the the sign up process. But this adds huge credibility because remember, the people who get punished are the honest appraisers. They are bla- get blackballed, and their business is destroyed in many cases
0: by, by the banks. Yeah,
1: by the banks, creating what we call in economics and criminology a Gresham's dynamic. An Gresham's dynamic is when you gain a competitive advantage by cheating. When that happens, market forces become totally perverse and bad ethics drives good ethics out of the marketplace. So I would explain to juries aggression's dynamic as well and how you can suborn appraisers, accountants, credit rating agencies, attorneys, by using this power of the purse of perverse market forces, and that the art was not to destroy or defeat these people who are supposed to serve as controls against abuse, but to suborn them, to turn them into your most valuable fraud allies, to use their very reputation to aid your fraud instead of Prevent your fraud, and so when these appraisers signed this petition, they identified themselves. They gave deliberately gave identifiable information, knowing that they were risking their livelihoods. So this was a super credible process by experts, and then they didn't just send it out; they sent it to all the top people and they sought media attention, they sought congressional attention, they went to the legislature and warned them. So this idea that nobody knew and nobody warned, that that is not simply a lie, it's an offensive lie that uh, really gets in the way of the courage of the appraisers. And by the way, the appraisers were essentially our only ally as effective regulators in the savings and loan debacle. So I've given lots of praise to um, our examiners who do the actual checks of underwriting. Let me also praise uh, these uh, appraisers uh, for their courage. In September 2004, the next great warning comes. And it's from, oh, I don't know, a group you would probably ignore. Oh, no, it's the FBI, the (laughs) premier law enforcement entity in the world, right? We can, you can debate, but that's how conservatives certainly would have, have pictured it in this era. Chris Swecker, not a random person, the senior FBI person in charge of dealing with mortgage fraud. Think of this for language used the phrase that it was, there was a developing epidemic, his word, of mortgage fraud, and predicted explicitly that it would cause a financial crisis, crisis his word, if it was not prevented. What year? September 2004. That's full four years before. But here's the kicker. And this is the, the con reveals this for the first time. In fact, it was fascinating, apparently. I, I wasn't in on the, this phone call, but I've talked to the producers of the con directly. Um, Patrick uh, calls uh, Chris Swecker and Chris Swecker says, I've been waiting for this call for six years.
0: Huh.
1: So nobody had bothered even though they had done this. And so I'll just give you one of the takeaways. He was at, well, I'll give you two. One, he was asked, uh, and you can see it in the con, how many regulators got in touch with you? (laughs) Well, you just warned that there's going to be a financial crisis because of an epidemic of fraud. Zero. Not a single one contacted him. Just there were no regulators, there were anti regulators.
0: Well, and, and also, they it wasn't like he was telling them something they didn't know, <laughs> they just didn't want to regulate.
1: That's you're, I think, understating the power of denial. So, me come back to that in the context of the Fed, where we have some uh evidence of all that and and the fdic let let me give you it's not a defense uh, believe me it's not a defense of the people uh but it's a richer tale and again that's what the con does it's it's not a comic book version it really goes through what happened uh for the first time um in any documentary okay the second big takeaway Chris Swecker. remember we made just our little agency in the savings and loan debacle, which was this big compared to the great financial crisis, which was this big, right? massively, massively greater. We made more than 30,000 criminal referrals. He was asked how many criminal referrals, the banking regulatory agencies, and that would include the savings and loan OTS in that era how many criminal referrals they made with regard to the great financial crisis and the answer is six the criminal referral process was destroyed and there's no evidence in the written record that i've been able to find of any order to eliminate it it just you know fade to black in cinematography terms the there used to be in every significant office a criminal referral coordinator they eliminated those folks you can see that gets taken out of the literature you know around 2000-ish
0: so the, the fade to black is by design they start underfunding oh, yeah. these
1: agencies yeah oh they they did under I mean l- underfund is such a unduly modest term <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely gutted. And um, uh, that's where I was going to say, we have some fairly detailed stuff about the FDIC and the Fed. And uh, the Khan the does some of this, but also the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission did some of this. So at the Fed, the key strategy um, by Greenspan was to prevent the Fed from getting information. So it's hard to know exactly how much he knew, right? Because it's sort of a negative in those circumstances. But there were extraordinary efforts to prevent the knowledge, and there's a wonderful, would say terrible, uh, vignette in which the poor fed staffer is simply doing his job and getting facts now greenspan forbade them to use the examiners to use their examination power to go into the holding companies and go to the affiliates that were typically funding the shadow and, and so this is the never, never land. I've talked to you about the shadow, which is unregulated. This is the supposedly, and literally this was the term used at the Fed. They called it Fed light regulation.
0: Now there's a case uh, in uh, early 2000s in Baltimore where Wells Fargo targets the African-American community in Baltimore. And I you know if you want to expand your market, you, this is a market, poor working class and even unemployed Black Baltimore is not within the web of your financialization. and Wells Fargo exp- explicitly targets uh, Black uh, working families and poor families in Baltimore so explicitly that when this sh- shows up in court, because they're, they're approving loans to people that in no, in no way could ever repay the loan. You know another version of this scheme. HUD, if I understand it correctly, uh, sues Wells Fargo in early 2000s, and there's a case comes to court. I think in 03 or 04 somewhere in there, and the whole thing comes out of what they were doing and predatory lending and all of, and the and the racist character. They, they they would actually refuse to give these loans to white people. It was only for blacks in Baltimore. So by 03, 04, you know, that model has certainly risen to the surface. How could people
1: not, you know, they had to be aware. Well, that's actually, that raises yet another good uh, example uh, that um, the Khan, uh, the second season uh, would uh, go into, I believe. So here's the the short version of a very long story. Um And I tell it because also it relates to Andrew Cuomo. All right. So this is uh, earlier than, um, well, I don't know, than some of your incidents. it's er It's early, let's put it that way. That particularly nasty scam that is rarely discussed and but is discussed frequently in the con is the yield spread premium so i'm going to have to take you a little bit into weeds the yield spread premium is the kickback if you the loan broker can induce the borrower to sign up to an above market rate of interest for this type of loan And we know what this type of loans, because there's literally a matrix. This is the term sheet provided every day, sometimes more than once a day by the lenders to the loan brokers, that the loan brokers are not allowed to show to you the customer by contract, right? The secret term sheets. And so if I could get people to pay too much too high an interest rate. I got not a little bit more fee, but a hugely greater fee. And indeed, the yield spread premium was so outrageous that in aggregate, it was bigger than the regular fee. The kickback was bigger than the regular fee that you would get. So it's what's really driving conduct. And it drives me, the loan broker, to do things that are expressly at your cost. Now, how am I going to do this? Well, one of the fascinating characters you'll meet in the con is this guy who trained loan brokers and who tested, well, who was interviewed at length so we don't have videotape, but we have, um, you know, audio tape of these long interviews. He, he makes a huge number of points that are incredible, but let's just start with two. One, he says, look, here's the central thing that we did. Here's the, the foundational lie. The foundational lie was that we were working for you and in your interests. And in fact, we were working against you directly contrary to your interests, right? The second is his view of discrimination and capitalism in which he says that he trained people that the right way for it to happen was that white brokers should uh, screw his word, um, white customers, black loan brokers should screw black customers because, and I quote, you're a capitalist first. Well, there's truth to that. (laughs) Okay, so this is this is the training. (laughs) And he, he mentions as well that again, the quintessential prior job, as I've mentioned, was flipping burgers. And now they're going to flip homes. Except that one job pays seventeen five for the entire year, and the other one, in a single deal with that yield spread premium kickback, you can get over twenty thousand.
0: All right. So I don't. I, I. I'm not sure if this is too early, but it's important to say again. This whole business model becomes the business model of the biggest banks at the most senior levels. The CEOs. This is not just about some poor guy who goes from flipping burgers to flipping mortgages.
1: Oh no, this is the army they recruit, right? So the banks have a problem that you've alluded to. They have very few branches in the minority neighborhoods and they usually operate through branches. Solution, elegant, loan brokers, we just put an remember there's no salary this is a hundred percent commission business and you only get your commission if the bank approves the loan so scamming the loan to make it look safe is everything
0: and every and the fees as are this, the fees for the scam is happening all the way up the food chain. It's not just the broker. This is like one of these you know these people that what was it? I used to work for Fuller Brush. You know <laughs> somebody sells at the door. Your manager makes more. Your manager, and of course, the guy at the top of the of the of the pyramid earns the most. All right, let's let's get to how this becomes such a national crisis on such a scale.
1: Okay, so this is where I was going with Andrew Cuomo so this became a scandal and some a harvard professor did a really good study and said this is a pure scam this yield spread premium operates as a kickback you need to ban it hud refused under cuomo so that strategy two fallback will bring a class action suit because you can't sue every little loan, you know, there are literally hundred, when I said they recruited armies, I mean it. Uh, you know, a place like AmeriQuest would have 60, 80,000 brokers working for it, not as employees, not exclusive, right? You know, type of thing. And so the only way to shut it down, if HUD refused to shut it down, was, well, of course, they could use HoEPA the Home Ownership and Equity Protection Act, but that would require Alan Greenspan. So we're, we're fallback to fallback to fallback to fallback positions, right? Since Greenspan will refuse to use the obvious way that Congress provided, Congress provided a special gun for killing this that was well-suited to killing it. And Greenspan said, I'm going to shoot that. <laughs> So then Cuomo could have stopped it by saying, this is a kickback. Kickbacks are not allowed.
0: So Cuomo ran HUD
1: what years? Uh, Under Clinton. Under Clinton, right. He was the secretary of HUD.
0: Because it's interesting, this Baltimore example I gave where HUD sues Wells Fargo, that's actually under
1: the second Bush administration. That's why I'm saying it's whichever party you hate (laughs) (laughs) there's limitless ammunition uh to uh, feed your your views uh, about that party but the broader point obviously is both major parties bought into this the bankers are our friend crap because they were the leading polit and this is true they were the largest single source of political contributions in America
0: i had lunch once with uh, a guy who was a, a political consultant for one of the largest unions in the country and, uh, and and in fact the president of the union was at the lunch and i said to him i don't understand why don't you use your clout to actually force some real regulation and don't allow the finance sector to control the democratic party uh, you know these guys can't win without your foot soldiers knocking on doors and all that and his answer was because nobody the democrats will never win an election without the financial sector backing them because they've got the cash for elections and so even in the union movement they couldn't imagine uh, not pushing not allowing the finance sector to run the democratic party
1: so the craziness of all of this which was a repeat of immediately before the great depression is that a single industry, finance, just on the eve of both crises, got 40% of all industry profits in America. Now this is supposed to be a middleman function. That's what finance is supposed to be, just a middleman. And the efficiency condition for a middleman is really clear, lean and mean. Instead, it's the monster that and it is run not for the benefit of the customer not for the benefit of the shareholders but for the benefit of the employees but by employees here we mean the c-suite type folks mainly and although again they're smart enough to be generous right i'm making literally billions of dollars why wouldn't i Make a loan broker rich. It's not my money anyway, right? It's the bank's money. It doesn't come from me. Why wouldn't I pay him a $10,000 kickback? He's making all of this possible. So great research was done by this Harvard prof. We could have won uh, class action suits, and that could have been an effective in uh, at least limiting this predation. And uh, under Cuomo, HUD passed a statement that said courts shouldn't allow class actions on this (laughs) issue. And it just blew up our ability to get any kind of uh, meaningful relief. So yes, you could have individual cases But it's like, you know, uh, uh, 100,000 people are speeding on the freeway. You can pull over (laughs) six or seven of them. (laughs) Well, that's what happened
0: in Baltimore. Uh, Wells Fargo
1: loses
0: loses the case. They pay their fine and,
1: and then they just keep doing it. Of course. Again, unless you prosecute individual bankers and put them in prison, nothing happens. Effective.
0: All right. Well, we're going to do another segment where we'll do the the big story of how this becomes such a national crisis, and how global. you know all the all, global and all most of the CEOs wind up ambassadors to the Netherlands. So thanks again, Bill. Thank you. And please don't forget the donate button and the subscribe button and and all that stuff.